So how are you doing? Thank God, very good. Pleasure to be here. And, Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and to all those people who have gathered here, Shalom Aleichem, Assalamu uh, Alaikum, Rahmat, Uh, we begin in the name of God, the gracious, the most merciful. Peace be upon every one of you, brothers, sisters, in faith and humanity. Thank you for joining us all. Why don't you start with um, defining to us your take on the concept of jihad? Okay, so I'll start with that. I, I think it begins with kind of understanding what a human and. The, the Jewish understanding of human psychology is that we are beings that are inherently at war with ourselves, right? Every person in their own experiences knows that they have a part of them, which is very good. They have a part of them, which really is just wonderful, amazing. Very often when we ask to give advice to someone else, we beautiful part of ourselves, right? Where somehow or another, we're suddenly able to be wise and wonderful. And then there's the part of ourselves which is not so great, right? This is what we call in Hebrew the Yetzahara. I think Muslims might call it the nafs, right? There's this, there, there's a part of ourselves, there, there's a part of ourselves which is, which is, truly, which is truly divine and, and invisibly divine. The part of ourselves which is more animalistic, more about our own desires and so forth. And those two sides of ourselves are inherently going to be at, at war. And... So part of the concept of jihad, and by the way, this, this concept of struggle, of spiritual struggle, it appears in Jewish texts also. Throughout the Middle Ages, there's a beautiful books that, that, that deal with this. Uh, Rabbi Avram ben Harambam is one of the famous ones, um, or also Duties of the Heart. Um, books actually originally written in Arabic, all of medieval Jewish philosophy uh, and moral guidance were actually written in Arabic. That was the language of scholars at that time. And in these books, of course, it describes the, the process of this, of this struggle. And, and I think without it, if we subtract this concept, we're really impoverishing ourselves because it's a description of the spiritual life, right? If we're trying to live a spiritual life, to understand this antagonism, to understand the nature of this struggle is absolutely essential because you're going to experience it. At least you should have a language to experience it. And it's sad that that, it's sad that, that language, the language of jihad has become so, uh, has become so muddied uh, by contemporary history and political movements that, that you can no longer talk about it and feel safe. And that's partially why I chose the name Jihadi Jew, was really to make this a safe conversation. If I can do it, right? If I yep. can do it. You know, the concept of jihad is actually one of the most misunderstood concepts, um, I think, worldwide uh, by Muslims, like I said, and, and non-Muslims alike. I remember in the very beginning of, uh, of, of the discussion surrounding jihad after 9-11 specifically, One of my friends, um, his name was Osama. His name is Osama, and he used to actually work as a professor uh, at UCLA. And I have another friend, his name is Jihad. So he called him, they, we, we, they didn't have cell phones then, so he actually called UCLA. They said, who's speaking? He said, this is Jihad. Who do you want to speak to? Uh, he said, I want to speak to Osama. And the lady panicked so much, she didn't know what to do, so she just hung up the phone. 
you know, it's, uh, and, and the misunderstanding continues. And unfortunately, media does not play a positive role because of the fact that there is, you know, a lot of politics involved in the world today. Um, so what is the concept of, of jihad? If I were to explain it very briefly, we have two types of jihad in Islam. One is the jihad between us and ourselves, just like you said, and we're in a constant battle. In fact, it was beautifully said by you where, you know, one struggle is where we stand uh, in our sanctuary to pray to the Almighty God. We Muslims, the place of our prayer, our daily prayer is actually called mihrab. Mihrab is a place of war, it comes from the word, root word harb. And the reason being is because when we stand in front of God, we have to cleanse ourselves. We have to literally become the, uh, the servants of God. Uh, to seek his pleasure. Uh, the prayer that we do in Islam is not just supposed to uh, uh, get us uh, physically closer to a prayer mat, but it's supposed to actually get us closer in our behavior to the Almighty God and to seek his pleasure. Surat al-Baqarah, the cow, where God says to the Muslims, and fight those who come to fight you for the sake of God and do not transgress for God dislikes the transgressors. Now, within the course of history, if we see Muslims transgressing, uh, that should not be portrayed as part of the Islamic teachings. Part of the Islamic teachings, Islamic teachings are laid within the Holy Quran. God tells us, how we should act and how we should behave within the Holy Quran. But, you know, today, just because some Muslims may transgress, such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda or what have you, or they may be transgressed upon by other members of, of religious groups, that should not reflect on that religion. And similarly, it should not reflect on the religion of Islam. That, to me, is uh, explaining the concept of jihad in a nutshell. The next topic that I actually wanted us to talk about is the Abrahamic faiths. Like I said, we're all the children of Abraham. Abraham, this great individual. Um, Abraham, this great leader. Abraham, a personality that, uh, uh, that unites the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims. Do Abrahamic faiths and their innate nature preach love, harmony, and peace, or are they violent religions? What is your take on this? So my answer is yes to all that. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, a lot lately. So uh, I'll try to break it down as best as I can. I think, first of all, I think for certainly for Judaism and Islam, and Christianity's situation is a little bit different. But for Judaism and Islam, both of our, both of our religions historically begin with a lot of violence, right? Uh, in, the case of, in the case of Judaism, it's with the, um, it's with the, the, conquering, of the, land, the conquering of the land of Israel, um, which was attended by a lot of, by, by a lot of violence. The idea, the idea being that to establish a kind of uh, ideal society, national society, um, there had to be this kind of destruction that went before it. And, and that beginning sets the pattern for, uh, for, for violence. And I would say, and Islam also, Islam, of course, also begins 
with a lot of violence, the opposition of Quraysh, and then later, um, and, and later, you know, issues of succession and things like that. And so those, that early, those early histories of, those early histories of violence, I think, do have, uh, do have uh, an impact on us. Beyond that, I would say the part of the Abrahamic vision is this creation of a just society. We're not here just for our personal spiritual uplift, but our collective uplift. And it's really great. And in the case of, in the Jewish case, it's to create a national society. I would say in the, in the Muslim case, maybe an international society that could be debated. But the idea is to create, is, is to use the, is to use the ideals, is to use these values in order to create a society that is, um, that is just and that is going to be under the rule of God. And one of the ways to get people to do what you need to do in a society is through violence. Um, violence is an incredibly powerful tool. And so it is definitely, at least the Jewish case is definitely part of the toolbox, right? It's, it's, violence, is, violence is a means um, towards certain ends and can be used as a mean towards certain ends in order to, us, in order to create uh, a society of, a, a just society. And, and, and this is an important, and this is an important, important point, peace is always better. <laughs> that is to say that peace is the ultimate goal. And that, you know, we, of course, we began, we began this dialogue with a greeting of peace. Right? We both were taught that we need to greet people with peace. The reason for that is because it's the single most important human value. It's the single most important thing that you can want for yourself or to want for somebody else. So on the one hand, you have violence as a tool and that, it, that it's always going to be in the toolbox. It's also the last tool you want to take out, out of the toolbox. It's the very last thing you want to use because really what you're trying to achieve is peace. Do you believe that those Abrahamic faiths, and, and, and let's, let's uh, exclude uh, Christianity right now um, mm -hmm. and speak about those two faiths that we represent. Uh, do you think that within their innate nature, there was violence and peace? Or do you believe that uh, within their innate nature, lies the teachings of peace, but individuals who lacked understanding or had different motives actually took that and, and turned it into some violent scenarios or violent years to, uh, to give strength to their, their religions. No, I, I honestly, at least, at least as, as, as Judaism is concerned, I think that, you know, we look at, uh, you know, we, we see that even even Moses went to war. Um, you know, even uh, Abraham also went to war. Um, so there are. It, it's definitely it's definitely an option in situations where in situations where there is no choice, right? I think the main contribution is to understand that when there is a choice, the choice is key, right? And I think that that you know we all we also live in we also. Um, the Abrahamic religions also live in a world, right? Uh, live in a world in which other people may use violence against us. And so the question is, okay, so how do you respond when somebody uses violence against you? How do you, you know, how do you respond? Um, and I think the defensive, the, the defensive use of violence is always kind of, uh, is, is, certainly, is certainly something which is permitted. 
uh, within the innate nature of the messages and the revelations sent by God to humanity through prophets. And, and we all believe, I mean, you believe in angels, we believe in angels, uh, especially the angel Gabriel, who uh, would bring the revelation to, uh, to the prophets. Um, there, was, there were no messages of violence sent to Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad. Um, for us Muslims, we firmly believe that our Quran, uh, the last scripture, is the last scripture revealed by God to humanity. And we also believe that the scripture of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith is being completed by the Quran. So it is not the fact that there could have been major differences within, uh, between Islam and Christianity because they're supposed to complete each other. Now, this is a most completely Muslim take on the, 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 the issue. Um, now, is it, is, it, is it the fact that uh, it would be possible for God to tell Abraham and Moses and Jesus to be violent and then tell Muhammad not to be violent. Um, and I believe that is not the case. Now, in, 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 in response to what you said, yes, defense, to defend ourselves, that is a must. In fact, every human being must defend himself against harm because we Muslims believe, and I think this is a, a, a concept within all the Abrahamic faiths, that our soul and our body belongs to God. Therefore, we can't harm ourselves and we can't take our souls from ourselves and, and from God we begin and to God we return. Therefore, for example, the concept of suicide is not accepted in the Abrahamic faiths. Now, with that said, defending ourselves, whether it is Muslims defending themselves, whether it is the Jews defending themselves, whether it is the Christians defending themselves, and we have to define, divide those scenarios in the time of their prophets and today. Because today we can define things differently. But let's speak of the time in which, um, you know, in the era of the birth of, of that particular religion. Obviously, when you come with a, a revolutionary message, when you come with a new message, um, there, were, there, there will be people who will be upset and and you will see that they'll come to get you and to, to basically put that message to an end and, and, uh, and, and keep their, their teachings to, to continue. However, um, that was not the case with Judaism. That was not the case with Christianity. And that is not the case with Islam. So it depends how we define violence. To defend ourselves, if we are attacked, the Quran clearly allows us. To initiate war within we cannot deny that within the Islamic, I mean, I can only speak on behalf of Islam at this moment, though I believe, like I said, this is a universal message of God. It cannot be that Christians and Jews are even allowed to do this. Now you might, and I'll speak about the script, what my take on their scripture as well. Um, now, there are clear indications if Muslims were attacked to defend themselves, and there are clear indications that they cannot begin war. Did they do that? Yes, they began war. Yes, there were invasions. Uh, we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt or the Shia Muslims, have our own understanding of this concept, and that is the fact that it is not allowed. Um, in fact, the Quran says, "La There is no compulsion in religion. You cannot, and other verses uh, speak of this concept that you cannot basically forcefully let people accept the religion of Islam because the religion of Islam must reside in the heart. 
the Quran says the greatest of Muslims was Abraham. And when does it speak of his Islam in the Quran? When him and his son submitted to the will of God, that he's going to sacrifice his son for the sake of God. So when they both submitted, God says, Ibrahim or Abraham, you are a Muslim, meaning you have submitted to me. So Islam, when it's used in the Quran, it actually does not speak of the title of this religion that we follow today. It speaks of a concept. And the concept is to completely and utterly submit to the will of God. Now, um, we have in our traditions, a very famous um, uh, sermon by Imam Ali, the first Shi'i Imam and the fourth Caliph for all the Muslims, where he has a sermon in his book called uh, the, the Peak of Eloquence, uh, where he has a sermon known as the Sermon of Jihad. In that sermon, he defines what jihad is. And he defines whether violence should be used to conquer territory or to gain power or to, uh, to or, or what is the purpose of using violence and war. And he basically says in one portion, I'll let the audience go and visit, revisit this beautiful sermon. He says, as he's the caliph and he's the most powerful uh, man in that time uh, for the Muslim community. He says, and news has reached me that the Muslim army, which was represented by Muawiyah, and, and uh, the, the Muslims of Damascus um, and the Levant have reached Iraq. So they have entered Iraq and they have specifically entered a village called Al-Anbar. And now they are prosecuting Muslim women and non-Muslim women under the protection of Islam. What do they do to them? He tells us. They enter onto them and they take away from them their jewelry and their, their earrings. And those women then plead and they cry. So Imam Ali says, I'm calling on to you so you stand in defense of the weak. Now, according to Imam Ali, this violence is okay because you are going to defend Muslim women and non-Muslim women under the protection of Islam. He does not look at the title of those individuals. Though they're human beings and they must be protected. And then he adds and he says, if a, if a Muslim man dies out of sorrow, after hearing this news, I would not blame him. Yes, within, within our history of Islam, Muslims have killed one another. Muslims have invaded land. And that is not something, that is, not a, that is a dark part of our history that we are actually not proud of. Um, in fact, um, you know, uh, using violence would actually, according to my, so, so let me just clar clarify my take. And I, again, this is just a Muslim perspective on the scriptures, then how is it that, you know, that could be justified through the Christian or Jew Jewish scripture? We believe that those scriptures were collected after the, those prophets. So once they were collected after those prophets, there could have been areas where there was change for what people thought was going to empower that religion then. Again, that is completely my take, but I believe that the Abrahamic faiths that call us to go towards God, um, allow us once again to defend ourselves. But because this religion is meant to reside in our heart, and once it resides in our heart, it reflects on our action, violence would completely defeat the purpose of, of actually engaging people. Because as soon as violence is gone, as soon as that sword is gone, as soon as you cannot use violence with them anymore, 
they're just going to go back to their ways, just like many parts of Europe one day were Muslims. And as soon as that, you know, the Islamic empire collapsed, they didn't remain Muslims. They went back to their roots. We have our set of laws. I mean, we have our religion is based on law. And I believe it is because, for example, for Moses, he, need to, he needed to start a community from, from zero. And because of that, he needed laws to regulate his people. And similarly, the Prophet Muhammad also started from scratch in, in, in the lands of Mecca. So he needed laws as well. Now, we all know within your community, within the Jewish community and within the Muslim community, this is a pressing question by many individuals, many academics within our, within our religions. So Jews saying this towards their faith and Muslims saying this towards their faith. Um, collectively, I think it's a sentiment that is heard uh, almost every single day, especially uh, it's a question that is post, I mean, it's, it's asked of religious leaders uh, or, or the, the, the religious organization that, you know, you're saying that our, your set of laws are meant to, to, to make our lives better, but they're too difficult and they're not making our lives better. And you know what? We can't deal with it. Everything, you know, for us, they say everything we want to do, you guys say it's haram. So, uh, you know, what is your take on, uh, you know, religious law? And you can speak about it from wherever. I mean, you can speak about the formation of law, the flexibility of law, the implication of law. I'll, let that, I'll leave that up to you. And then once you're done, I'll, I'll give my perspective. God, let's just stay here all night with this one. Uh, <laughs> so just, just to give you an idea of how important this question is, I mean, you know, for those of you who know anything about the Jewish landscape, you know, Judaism, um, Orthodox Jews, religious, uh, Orthodox Jews, observant, religiously, uh, legally observant Jews, uh, probably represent maybe, I don't know, 15, 20% of world Jewish population. A lot of Jews really have rejected this idea of law. And I think that's really the distinction between the different denominations all relate to how they see law. Um, so I'm going to start by saying that I think that law has an immense spiritual value. The, the spiritual value of law is that it reaches into every single area of life. It keeps religion from being a weekend leisure, leisure time activity. Um, one of the things that law does is it just brings God's presence, it brings God's will into the smallest things that you do. So whether the way that you do business, the way that you conduct your family life, the way that you eat, the way that you the the way that you walk, the the way that you uh, the way that you talk to people, all the law reaches into those things in in such a minute way that it has a powerful influence um, on every area of human behavior. And if our goal is to submit to God. If our goal is, if our if our goal is to give ourselves to God and to be and to and to cleave and to cling to God, um, in all that we do, this is an, an amazingly powerful way to do it. And the process of law, the process of making law, um, involves us in this intimate um, relationship with God's will to try to divine and try to understand through principles, through logic, um, through understanding of, of humanity, through understanding of even nature, all the things that go into understanding 
all, all the things that go into to, to, to a legal decision, all of those things are brought together under this umbrella of God's will. And to me, that is very, very, very powerful. Having said that, um, I also see that a lot of the complaint people have about law comes from, first of all, the ignorance of lawmakers. You know, if you don't know a lot about law, the easiest thing to do is choose the strictest opinion. And unfortunately, in our generations, it seems that that's more and more the case, right? Um, so you do get a lot of strict opinions by, by people who, you know, they don't necessarily know the principles of the law well enough. And so they say, okay, we'll go with the strictest opinion. And that may not be really appropriate for the person in the context. The second uh, is that our consumer culture of more is better has also infected um, our religion. And a lot of people just think when it comes to religion, more is better. You know, if I just do like, the most extreme thing, right, that's going to be better because it's like, it's like I have a bigger boat or I have a better car. I have, right? And of course, it doesn't work that way. Right? In some cases, less is more. Right? A little bit is also good, right? And it may be that by choosing the biggest opinion, right, and, try, and putting the most pressure on yourself, and of course, it's, it's, it's absolutely dangerous because what happens is, is you make yourself miserable and then you think God is making, yourself, making you miserable, right? And you blame God instead of blaming, instead of blaming yourself, right? So that's, I think, a lot of people put that stuff on themselves, and I think it's not, it, or it's put on them by people who are, who are not using the law well. And, uh, and lastly, and this is a more, this is a more controversial uh, opinion, but I think there also have, sometimes uh, our, our ways of making laws uh, and our ways of adapting laws have become um, a little bit uh, fossilized. Um, our legal systems, and I can, I know a little bit about the Muslim legal system, but our legal system is definitely made um, to have a built-in flexibility to it in order to be able to adapt to new situations. And that has become very fossilized and very slow um, and very, and maybe overly cautious, right? There's a danger to not being cautious enough and there's a danger to be overly cautious. So, that and also there need to be like overarching principles of law that guide you in your decision making. One of them being that the purpose of the law is to be merciful, right? The purpose of the law is not to oppress people. So if you're making law in a way that oppresses people, that probably means there's something wrong with the way that you're making law because that's not the intention of the law. The intention of the law is is to be livable, right? We, the Torah is made to be lived. And if it becomes unlivable, that, that's, not, that's not a problem with the Torah. It's a problem with the people who are applying the Torah. So I think, it's a, I think law is great. I think it has, it has its dangers. Beautifully said. Uh, just, uh, just as we speak more and more, uh, I can definitely see so much commonality and I believe that, you know, for us living in the West, we, we definitely have uh, very, very similar concerns. So I'll actually start with answering this question by sharing something funny. Um, they say a Christian man converted to Islam. 
And he said, you know what, I, I converted, what should I do? They say to him, well, you have to go to the mosque at dawn and you have to pray. So he goes to the mosque and he prays and he's trying to go back to work after that. And they tell him, well, you know, all those years you never prayed, you never read the Quran, you never did anything. So my, why don't you stay the morning until the noon prayers and, you know, try to learn extra prayers. So he agrees. He stays until noontime. He's about to leave. They tell him, well, there's two hours to the afternoon prayer. So just hang on. He stays afternoon. He wants to go home. They tell him, well, sunset is just around the corner. Around sunset, we have to pray again. Another three units. He does that. He wants to leave. So, well, in about an hour, there's going to be the night prayers. Um, and uh, it's four units. So just hang on. So he all day he spent at the mosque praying and, and supplicating and reading the Quran. And at night he's about to go home and he's fatigued and he's tired. And he says, okay, I, I hope we're done. What's next? They say, well, are you circumcised? So he then says, you know what? Just let me go back to my religion. So the idea is you're right. You know, sometimes he, uh, you know, we make religion very difficult for people. And, um, and, and it, 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 it is, I think, for the most part, those who apply the teachings of religion in a very rigid way, we, you know, we have religious police and they are the so-called righteous people of our community, the ones that, you know, may have gone to a couple of pilgrimages or pray more or, or, or what have you, you know, in our case and even your case, the ones with longer beards are the holy ones. So those are all misunderstandings and, and those individuals actually are the ones that are behind the rigid uh, implementation of faith. So that is one. And then we have the, the jurists or the lawmakers who can have different takes on, on religion and, and they can come, come up with, like you said, beautifully stated, very precautious takes and laws and verdicts or what we call fatwas or they can have more flexible ones based on un, uh, an understanding of the bigger picture of, of the religion. Now, like you said, the religion of Islam is extremely flexible when scenarios change for a Muslim individual. For example, drinking for us is forbidden, obviously. Intoxicants are forbidden. However, if you're stuck in the middle of the desert and you're literally dying from thirst and all you have is you found a, a bottle of beer just laying there, then it is not only allowed for you to drink it to survive, but you must drink it to survive. So, you know, law is extremely flexible. Um, you know, you have a person that is literally drowning in front of you and it is that you hear the call for prayer. It is time for prayer. It's not only that you must uh, save that person, you know, Islam says, if you actually pray without saving that person, your prayer is not even accepted. It is a void prayer because it was your duty to save that person instead of praying. So there is a lot of flexibility when it comes to, to law. However, unfortunately, we also within the religion of Islam have the extreme interpretation of the religion of Islam, where they take things very literally. And it is the exterior that always matters. And the Prophet Muhammad, he knew this. So he would tell his companions, Be aware that God looks at your hearts, looks at how, 
and, and, and he tells his community that, you know, God says, the Prophet Muhammad says on behalf of God, that God says that the, the universe does not occupy me. The heavens do not occupy me. The earth does not occupy me. But the heart of a believer occupies me. So he is content with this small location. And we have traditions from our imams that tell us the heart of a believer is a sanctuary of God. So, you know, you know, you, you'll find people who, you know, take the shaving of the mustache and the long beards and the short dresses and the, you know, the, the, the physical appearance of the religion of Islam extremely seriously. However, when it comes to their practice, um, it's completely diluted because of those rigid um, understandings of law. So in conclusion, what I would say about law and the religion of Islam is indeed every time we find a law is actually taking us away from God, meaning we come across a law that we may think um, we should do this and we must do this, but in, in fact, in its innate nature, it's taking us from, uh, from, from godly behavior being kind to our neighbor. We know we have to be kind to our neighbor. If somebody comes and introduces me to an Islamic law that says, go rob your neighbor or harass your neighbor, I have to think. That can't be a real law. That's got to be a crooked law. This guy's got to have a crooked mind to tell me that because God in the Quran and in, in the Abrahamic faith teaches us to be kind to our neighbor. If we have a law that says, you know, if you are a Muslim in a non-Muslim land or you are a Jew in a Muslim land or you're a Christian and Muslim land or vice versa, then you are allowed to, for example, break the law just because they follow a different law. Then I got to think, well, I actually live here. I want to live in peace. I need to be a good citizen. That goes against the innate nature of, of religion and God. So this is where we have to have a better understanding of law and we have to change our paradigm towards law and I think, you know, um, that's like you said, it's a, it's a huge discussion, but I wanted to clarify that um, from a, uh, an Islamic perspective of things. You know, there were people who actually left comments on your page when you posted uh, my flyer and people who left comments on my page when we yeah. actually uh, posted the flyer. And, and, and uh, you know, I want to say something, I, I want to say a couple of things actually be, before I let you speak on this topic. One is when I sit here with a rabbi, a member of the Jewish faith, a, a teacher of, of Ju Judaism, does that mean that I undermine the, the struggles of some people, such as the people of Lebanon or Palestine, or I'm being disrespectful to them? Or does that mean that you're doing the same towards your people? I don't see it that way at all. I see that, you know, instead of us sitting here for hours, and I don't even know whether we agree or disagree on many of those things because, frankly, we've never talked about it. And talk about political issues. And, and I certainly can. I think there would be no hard feelings. I think that we can agree to disagree if we do. But that does not mean just because I'm sitting with a Jewish rabbi that I'm some sort of a sellout on my people and my people should be upset with me and I automatically now agree with, for example, uh, the foreign policy or the domestic policy of certain governments or political systems. Similarly, when you're sitting and talking to me, that does not mean that you have now accepted all the tenets of Islam and all the political theories of Islam and the political actions of Islam.
And I don't know why people cannot see through that and understand that and respect that. Today in the world, the majority are talking about that difference. The majority are talking about where we disagree. And many people are being hurt and we cannot deny this. However, there is a very, very, very tiny minority that sits here and says, you know what, why don't we just give our ideas and perspectives? And, and we may disagree, but why don't we start a dialogue somewhere? In fact, I can speak for Muslims who take that stance, read the history of the Prophet Muhammad and see where he actually hate mongered against Jews and members of the Jewish faith just because they were Jews. In fact, he respected them and the Quran respects them. You know, when the Quran refers to the, the people of the book, which are the Christians and the Jews, and for example, chapter 2, verse 62, the, the, the cow, God says, and I'll read in Arabic and I'll translate because I want my Muslim brothers and sisters to please pay attention to me. This is a very important discussion. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا The believers. وَالَّذِينَ هَادُوا And the Jews. وَالنَّصَارَ And the Christians. وَالصَّابِئِينَ And the Sabians. مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ Those who believe in God. وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ And the day of judgment. وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا And they do good deeds. فَلَهُمْ أَجْرُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ Their deeds and their good uh, acts are, are, are respected towards God. Now, we have a variety of of, of of, of, of ways to interpret this verse. And I don't want to get into that. You know, we have people who really believe in the full version of Islam and pluralism. And they'll tell you, you know, Islam says that, oh, you know, you can follow the Jewish faith, Christian faith and, and Muslim faith and, 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 and there won't be a difference. So I, as a Muslim one day, I can, uh, I can let me be a Jew for a week. And then oh, I'm bored with that. Let me be a, a Christian for a week. I'll go back to Islam for a month. Some people will tell you that. Obviously, I don't agree with that. However, the fact that Islam is actually recognizing their, their existence. Islam is recognizing Jews exist. Christians exist. Sabians exist. Believe, believers in God exist. And respects them in that manner. At the least I can do is do the same. Let me recognize my Jewish neighbor. Let me recognize my, the rabbi that lives in my street. Let me go and pay a visit to a, a, a church, a synagogue. That's what the Quran is doing. It's recognizing their existence. When a Jewish rabbi comes and visits me as a Muslim, he's recognizing that you are part of my society. You are part of my community. We have to learn how to coexist. Again, to my Muslim brothers and sisters, chapter 3, verse 64, where God demands from the Prophet Muhammad, this is not um, you know, up for negotiation or discussion. Qul, you tell them. Ya Ahl al-Kitab, O oh, the people of the book. Let us come together under a common understanding so that we worship, we recognize there is no God, but, you know, there's only one God and we worship Him. And that is the commonality between us. Now, with that said, I want to say, what would be, if, if this is the Quran, and I want to actually use a, a story from the life of the Prophet Muhammad as well, specifically for this discussion. For all those who, who just kept DMing me because the, the title was, can Muslims and Jews be friends? And they kept DMing me, no, no, what, what are you doing? This, that. 
Just calm down. Let me explain something to you. Um, and I, I hope you listen to me and I hope you hear me out on this. The Prophet Muhammad, we all, you know, Muslims growing up, Muslims in, in the West, Muslims in the Middle East and everywhere in the world. We've heard the story many times. That when the Prophet Muhammad was in Medina, there was a, a small community of Jews there. And obviously, like I said, you know, every time you have a new message, some people will not like new. So she didn't like the Prophet Muhammad. And she was a Jewish woman. So every day he would pass through her house and she would throw some trash at him. And we have the story. And obviously, I don't mean any disrespect. Just because she was a Jew, she does not represent the Jewish faith. I'm not saying this represents the action of, of the Jewish faith or the Jews. And the Prophet Muhammad's companions would say, why don't, you know, this crazy woman, he says, please, calm down. She's an old woman. It's okay. And for a couple of days, he passed in front of her home, and there was no trash. So the Prophet told one of his companions, go and check up on this woman. If you want to be a Muslim, a true Muslim, listen to the story. And they said, this woman is ill, or the messenger of God. And obviously, she's so ill, she couldn't you know, do what she did every day. So the Prophet says, we shall visit her after prayers. This is a Jewish woman. She threw trash on the Prophet. He went and he sat there and he said to her, do you need anything? Do you need us to take care of things for you? Do you need groceries? Do you need food? Do you need anything? You let us know. That is the act of the Prophet Muhammad. If you want to be a Muslim, this is how you act. So even if there are people who are hostile to you, your job is to represent the Prophet Muhammad and his mannerism. And, and that soon will change. We will soon, if every Muslim, I, you know, some people will tell you we're 3 million. Some people will tell you we're 10 million people in America, regardless, however the number may be. If you just took that message and applied it to your neighbors to the right and to the left, many people will change the way they think of Islam today. And many people will change their paradigms. What they see in the media is going to change automatically. But until then, that will not change. And actually, I'm going to just wrap up. I'll, I'll go before you here. And I'm just going to wrap up and let you take this. I'll say this. When I see young men who went on your page and said, oh, this, this guy, he's Shia, so he's not Muslim. Why are you interviewing him? Or why are you having this debate? Or, or the likes of this hate mongering and I don't blame this young man. I don't blame, blame this young woman. I don't blame this, the people that came and, 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 and said things on my page. Uh, I blame the education, religious educational system that we have. So if, there is, if you're going to a mosque and your imam is teaching you that other Muslims are not Muslim, there's a problem in that message. And if you're going to a mosque where it tells you a Muslim cannot speak to a Jew, then there is a problem in that message. So what do we do? We go back to the basics. We go back to the foundations. And we read the Quran. And we contemplate on the, the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad. And we draw a conclusion. Now, the very last thing, and I, I, I don't want people to come back and leave this verse under my, uh, you know, under this, this show and say, well, you skipped this verse. You didn't talk about it. I don't do that. I, I talk about it the way it is. It's, uh, I think it's, it's when we are brave enough to discuss those things clearly and vividly that we actually get to answers. So we actually have a verse in chapter 5, uh, verse 51, 
the, the table spread that says, all oh, Muslims, do not take Christians and Jews as awliya. Now, many have wrongly interpreted this, the term awliya as friends. So you can't be friends. However, we find that, for example, Imam Ali, when he needed sometimes to borrow money, he would borrow it from a Jewish man that lived in Medina. Now, are you telling me that he went to a Jewish man while he was not his friend, while they didn't have an understanding? Literally, we have traditions that he would go and borrow that money from a Jewish man and, and then he would return it to him. So what, how do we perceive this verse? This verse, we have to understand it. In its context of revelation, when was it revealed? What does it speak of? This was revealed in a time where Muslims were actually known, some Muslims were actually known as the hypocrites. What did they do? They would take, they, they would create fear within the, the Muslims that, oh, you're going to be attacked by the people of Mecca. You're going to be annihilated. You're going to be killed. They're going to destroy you. And they did that because they wanted to unite with the pagan Arabs. Now, the pagan Arabs were the idol worshippers, a group of the Christians, a group of the Jews. So they pretended they are Muslims, but in fact, they were spies for those who wanted to annihilate the religion of Islam. And God says, don't do that. Don't go against your own people. Don't do this on the expense of your own religion. But God does not say you cannot be a friend with a person based on their ideology, if they don't hurt you, if they don't have any malicious intentions. In fact, the Holy Quran is very clear. Not just Jews, not just Christians. We don't care what your religion is. We don't care what you believe in. If you're a good human being, we can associate with you. We can live in peace and harmony with you. Can, uh, I'll try to take this apart as best as I can. Um, I, I want to start out first by saying that when it comes to the internet, I think people forget that internet is a form of communication, it's speech. And, you know, the world was created with speech. Speech is our uniquely human quality. And it's also our biggest responsibility. One of the things that Judaism teaches is that, is that we, uh, that speech is a sacred right. You know, it's not, it's not some, it's not some small thing. It's a very, very powerful tool that we can do immense good with it. We can do immense bad with it. And that we have to use it. In a, we have to, to use it appropriately. And one of the things it seems that the internet does, and maybe it's the anonymity of the internet, but people suddenly, even people who know better, suddenly have this idea like they could say whatever they want, like just this, like all bets are off. You know, even people who who who, if you were to meet them, would be kind and wonderful because that little bit of anonymity, that little distance. Where the where the object of your the, the object of your anger is not directly in front of you, they feel they can just kind of let loose, and it's really um, it's it's really very sad. It's really very sad uh, to see because people who know better, even people who know better, sometimes behave badly um, on the internet. And I think that there is a certain toxicity which has come into our uh, come into faith. Um, and, and largely, that's a kind of ignorance. I've gotten to the point, honestly, where whenever I hear, um, whenever I hear any religious leader beginning to talk about anybody else's religion, I want to scream. And <laughs> I just want to scream because yeah. they almost invariably get it wrong. You yeah. know, if it's 
But unless they're getting it wrong, if I listen to a rabbi and he starts talking about Islam, he's almost always getting it wrong. And I just yeah. want to shut up. Because, because we so often we, we're talking, we don't know what we're talking about. We yeah. don't, we never take this opportunity, right? I mean, how many, how many of me are there and how many of you are there that are taking this opportunity today to actually get to know each other and talk? And it's not just what happens, you know, in this little box. It's now, if I have a question, if I have a question, somebody throws a verse at me, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, hold on a second, <laughs> hold on a second. I, have, I go on Instagram, I ask you a question, and you go, oh, no, 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 right? So that becomes, so now we have avenues to be able to understand each other better also. Um, and and that, that power of the internet is amazing, right? The fact that, the fact that I can talk, I can talk to 50 imams right now, right? Of every possible stripe and opinion. And I can, and I can really get to, and I could really get some good opinions and really get to understand better. And if they have a question, they can come ask me and we can, they can ask me, or if I know somebody who knows better than I do, I say, oh, no, no, I'm not the person to ask, ask this person. Um, and that's an incredible power, you know, that toxicity has just got to go. It just has got to go. And, you know, I have a lot of sophisticated arguments for why it's got to go, but I'm going to just give a simple one. Life is better. Life is better. How much better is it to walk into the supermarket? I happen to have, I, I, I happen to go to a supermarket, which is, a, it's a Persian supermarket, wholesome choice in Irvine, California. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, awesome. we all go there. You've been there, right? Yeah. Like, walk in, it's an international experience, right? There's, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's Persian Muslims, there's Arab Muslims, there's, there's Persian Jews. Persian Jews, yeah. Persian Jews, everything you can imagine is in there. Yeah. How nice is it to be sitting by the, to be picking out your cucumbers and, and be able to look at everybody and go, you're my potential friend, right? I don't have to be afraid of you. I don't have to yeah. be afraid of you, right? We're yeah. cool at our cucumbers. <laughs> that, that to me, that to me is a much, that to me is a much better life. And as far as friendship is concerned, you know, if I, if I say the word friendship uh, to religious they'll, they'll be thinking of um, a verse in, uh, in our Mishnah, which is the teachings of the rabbis of the first century. And it says, and it says, you should, um, you should acquire, you should acquire for yourself a friend, right? You should have a teacher and acquire for yourself a friend and judge everybody according to the good. So why are those th three things together? So first of all, the idea is a friend is somebody you learn from, just like you learn from a teacher, right? So if we see friendship as an opportunity to gain good from one another, then when you ask me the question, you say, can you be friends with this guy? I'm pointing up because you're above me. <laughs> can I be friends with this guy? Of course I can be friends with this guy because I can learn from him, right? I can learn from him and his behavior. I can learn from him from his religion. I can learn from him in, in, in his manners. I can learn from him in so many ways. So can I be his friend? Of course I can be his friend. Now, if there's somebody who I can't learn from and can't learn from me, maybe we can't be friends. Maybe that's not possible. If you're going to yell at me on the internet and scream, it's probably we're not going to be able to be friends right? because I have nothing to learn from you. You obviously decide you have nothing to learn from me. And the last part of judging everybody according to the, uh, judging according, in order, 
the good. In order to have a friend, you also have to be able to do that. You have to be able to understand that every single person, every person has their faults. Every, every group has their faults. And they, have, and they have their faults. They have their strengths. And we have things we agree upon and we don't agree upon. And you began with that. One of the things that I want to say about that is that, you know, one of the things that happens on the internet is we start talking about the things we most care about first. Imagine you did that. But do I walk up to strangers on the street and start talking to them about the things I'm most passionate about? No, I get to know them and I get to trust them. And I get to the point where I understand that they want for me what I, they, they, they want good for me, just like I want good for myself. And I want good for them, just like I want good for myself. And once we've built a relationship, then we can talk even about difficult things. And even if we don't, don't agree, we're able to talk with respect and we begin to hear each other. We begin to hear each other. And that's really what friendship uh, is, is, is about to me. It's about agreeing about everything because we're not necessarily going to agree about everything, but to be able to hear, to, to hear each other. And, um, and my experience is, is that it works awesomely that, uh, it's, 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 it's great to have friends and you learn new things and you develop Absolutely. new, you grow. Uh, it's actually very close to the time of prayer. Uh, so we're actually not going to be able to cover it to my audience. I apologize to those who are, are, are watching us. We had, you know, we wanted to speak of the character of Jesus uh, and our take, the Islamic take, the Jewish faith. Uh, unfortunately, we actually are running, on, um, running uh, late on time because Instagram only gives us one hour. And after the one hour, it actually dismisses the live show. So I've actually opened the, uh, the comment section. And um, one thing I want to tell the viewers who are watching live now and those who will watch it later is that number one, this video will be edited. It'll be fixed. It'll be, uh, you know, it'll be ready for you to share it with your friends, with your colleagues, with, you know, people who need to really hear this. Um, so um, it will be, it will be ready soon. Uh, after the show, we'll 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 take the first portion, we'll take the second portion, we'll we'll put them together, and uh, you'll be able to to watch it over. Um, but what I want to say uh, to you is, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to come and introduce your faith and your take on all the things that we talked about. And one thing that I also want to agree with you on is that it's always beautiful when Muslims introduce their faith, Jews introduce their faith, Christians introduce their faith to one another. There will always be a gray area, a little bit of misunderstanding, a little bit of, 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 of uh, you know, a diluted kind of interpretation of things when I try to speak about your religion and you try to speak about mine. Now, we could do that, but when we're sitting right in front of each other and we can see each other and hear each other. If I make a mistake, you can say, wait, hold on. You made a mistake and everybody can see that being corrected. But if I sit in a, in a closed room with hundreds of thousands or, or thousands of Muslims and tell them this is what the Jews believe in. And you sit in a hall of, of, you know, Jews and tell them this is what they believe they, they believe in. Well, this is what's been happening for the longest period of time. Has it worked? Not really. Um, so this is this is a new approach. I, I definitely like to thank you for 
giving us the opportunity, giving an opportunity to my audience to hear at first hand from you about, you know, all those wonderful things we talked about. And uh, I'd like to actually ask you to give us your sentiments, your takes, your thoughts on this, and then we'll conclude with uh, a prayer. So this is based on a prayer uh, by Rabbi Nachman Abrasov. Uh, Master of the world, have mercy, dear God. Draw your peace into the world and let it spread among all your people. Take away all forms of conflict but those that are for your sake alone. The conversations of true friends that lead to higher levels of peace. For you know how much evil and sorrow our conflicts create and how much good can come from our understanding. Show us your compassion, cool your anger, send me and all of us love, life, and peace always. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, Rabbi Wiseman, it was great to have you. I, I definitely enjoyed the conversation. Uh, the crowd is definitely, uh, they definitely enjoyed the conversation and I hope to see you soon. Enjoy the weather in Washington, D.C., and hopefully we'll see you back when you're in California. Thank you so much.